Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, with a special focus on verse 6 this morning. Um, And Lord willing, for the rest of December, we're going to be camping out in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the plan will be at the start of the new year to come back to 1 Corinthians, where we'll take a look at uh, the wonder of communion at the Lord's table on what I hope will be a Lord's Supper uh, Sunday. But today we come to this wonderful passage, uh, sometimes called the Carmen Christi, uh, the hymn to Christ. Uh, It's believed by many commentators and scholars that this passage was very likely an early Christian hymn circulating in the church during the time of the Apostle Paul. And if that's right, then Paul is quoting it as an apt summary of the significance of who Jesus Christ is, and as well as what he has done. But but notice in context here, Paul doesn't just quote this hymn about Jesus out of the blue. It follows a summons to, uh, to Christians to a particular mindset and life that ought to be ours in the light of the first coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is doing here. So, Uh, he has the summons to Christian humility. And then Paul, that launches Paul in verses 6 through 11 into this rehearsal of this Christian hymn. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that summons to humility then launches him into this hymn, which rehearses the significance of Christ and his coming. And if you look at verse 6, you'll see it begins with, I don't, I don't know how else to put it, but the most profound theology. Okay, so, so get ready, um, buckle your seatbelt, or maybe I'm going to use some imagery of swimming in the deep end today. So maybe put on your swimmies, because we're going to have a, a theological Christmas this year. These are, these are deep theological waters and, and I thought rather than, you know, stay, stay in the, the shallow end, that we would, with, with God's help, just jump right into the deep end together. And we're doing this to see uh, and sense something of the grandeur, grandeur of the faith that we confess and that we might worship God together with a, with a renewed sense of joy and also understand what it is that actually grounds humility in the Christian life. So, Just before this hymn, notice that at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul confronts division in the Philippian church. Uh, In verse 2, he says he wants them to have the same mind, same love, be of one accord and of one mind. Uh, Negatively, in verse 3, he calls them to put away selfish ambition and conceit. Uh, Positively, then, in verses 3 and 4, he wants them in humility, to count others more significant than yourselves and to look to the interests of others. That's the the mindset he summons them to, the mindset of a Christ-like humility. But it is striking to notice the way that he grounds this summons to humility, isn't it? His summons to, to think and act in humility, is grounded in this most profound theology. The summons in verse 5 is grounded upon verse 6. 
So have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. See, a different way of thinking and relating to one another that is grounded on Christ Jesus, who, though being in the very form of God, being very God of very God, did not count his divine rights something to be grasped and clutched onto, but willingly became a servant of others. And so you see, the practical call here to humility is grounded on a profound theology of the incarnation. And so we need to, we need to cultivate, I, I think, we need to cultivate a, a holy impatience with the sentiment that says, don't give me theology, just give me more practicality. Right? That's, a, that's a really popular sentiment today, isn't it? Do you, have you heard something like that? You know, don't, Pastor, don't give me more theology, give me more practicality. Just tell us what we're supposed to do. Show us how to live. That's a popular way of thinking today. But, but listen, practicality without theology is like a car without an engine. It's, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. And Paul is, Paul is helping us to see that profound theology is what fuels a, a renewed life and a changed mind. So instead of shrinking back from profound theology, we're going to, again, with the Lord's help, we're going we're gonna to swim out into the, the, the deep together. And with God's help, uh, we will be renewed and shaped by these profound truths of who Jesus is and what he has done for his people to the glory of the Father. Now, one other thing to, to notice here before we read the text um, is that verses, verses 5 through 11, they're not abstract, esoteric, ivory tower doctrinal assertions. Right? These, these are not statements about the Lord Jesus that we're taking from some kind of academic textbook that only a few intellectual people would have some remote interest in. What we have before us here is the, the word of God and, and what was very likely an early Christian hymn of praise that was circulating in the church. It's a profound theology for the church and it's profound theology that is turned into doxology. It's truth that is meant for the people of God to be sung. And that means that one of the lessons I think we can take away from this passage is that there is a close connection between what we believe, what we sing, and how we live in the Christian life. And because what we believe determines, shapes how we live, and what we sing reinforces what we believe and therefore is an essential component of Christian formation. Think about what Paul is doing here pastorally. I was just blown away by this as I was, as I was thinking about it during the week. He's, he's confronting conflict and division in a local church. And just ask yourself, if you are the pastor, how might you approach that? How might you address the issue of conflict and division within the household of God? Well, here's what Paul does. He does it with a hymn. He does it by reciting a hymn focused on the humility of Christ displayed in the incarnation. Isn't that helpful? And isn't that so instructive for our thinking about counseling? I think it is. 
So we're going to consider uh, in, in detail today, verse, verse 6. And frankly, I approach this with a little bit of trembling because we could have weeks to consider this verse and, and that wouldn't be enough time. In fact, there's no way for us to ever really plumb the depths of the profundity of what Paul says in this passage and in this verse. And yet, we're going to try to swim down as far as we can uh, together this morning. Okay, so we're going to reflect on three aspects of verse 6. Let me just mention them now, and you can be paying attention to them as we read the text. First, we're going to think about the being of Christ. What is he? That might sound like a strange question, but it's important. What is he who being in the very form of God? The being of Christ. And secondly, we're going to think about the person of Christ. So, on the one hand, it says, the form of God is the form that belongs to Christ. But notice that Paul then goes on to say, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he asserts that Jesus is God, and then asserts that there is a distinction to be made within God. Right? So he's, he is the only God that there is, the being of Christ, one with the Father and with the Spirit in the fellowship of the ever-blessed Trinity. And yet, he is not the Father and he is not the Spirit. So as to his person, he is the divine Son. Okay, so the, the being of Christ, the person of Christ. And then thirdly, notice Paul speaks about Christ counting. He did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. We're going to think about the mind of Christ, thirdly. Let's pray again before we turn our attention to the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, um, please forgive us for, uh, for failing if we've done it to ever swim out into the deep. Uh, forgive us if we have been given over to ever being uh, simplistic or superficial Christians. And we know that what we need in our lives is the most profound theology that you give to us in your word to transform our minds and to shape and direct our lives. So today we ask that you would fix our minds and eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and captivate our hearts with the wonder of what he has done for us in and through the incarnation leading him to the cross and his exaltation. Be with us today and give us understanding, we ask, by the Holy Spirit, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, we're all familiar with the saying, I think, that familiarity breeds contempt. And uh, maybe that is part of the reason why at times we do not find ourselves amazed at the reality of the incarnation. Over the years, we've, we, as we've gotten older, we've heard this, the same old familiar story, and perhaps it's become a little dull to you. Hey, we know all of the characters. We know the plot line. We know about Mary and Joseph. We know about Jesus in a manger. We know about shepherds in their fields. We know about angels in the sky and so on. Check, 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 we can say. But honestly, if that's all there was to it, frankly, we would be a little bit justified in getting bored with that. See, a sentimentalized version of the birth of Jesus, it might make for a really nice Christmas card or a nice nativity play for kids, but it's hardly something that leads us to wonder and worship and that actually grounds humility in the Christian life. But what I want us to see afresh today and the weeks to come, that the real significance of the fact of Christ's incarnation, it is not something that we can ever fully comprehend. It is, in the right sense of the term, a divine mystery. We will never get past it. We will never move beyond it. We will never ever fathom the depths of it. And dear friends, verse 6 is just the threshold. Just the threshold. And, and the first of the things Paul has to say to us to, to reignite our wonder and our joy and to ground our humility in the Christian life is about the being of Christ. The being of Christ. So take a look at verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, just hold on right there. Okay? Paul is talking about Christ Jesus. And he tells us about his, his being. He was in the form of God, Paul says. He will go on to talk about how he was born in the likeness of men. He was born. But his point in verse 6 is not that at his birth he, he somehow came into existence or began to exist at the moment of his human conception. No, he, Paul is saying he existed in the form of God before he was born of the Virgin Mary. And he existed in the form of God. Now, this word in, in Greek, it's, it's, it's morphe. Uh, we sometimes talk today, though, about one thing morphing into another thing, right? Um, as if it can change from being one thing into something else. So I think we typically understand morphing to be the opposite of, of substance or what something in fact is. I'm, heard you, I'm sure you've heard the expression, um, it was all form and no substance, right? Meaning that it had the appearance of something that's good, but there was no substance to it. There was no reality there. Now, I'm saying that because if we're going to understand what Paul is teaching here, I think we've got to get into our minds that that is not how the word morphe is being used here. He's not saying Christ Jesus 
morphed from being God into something else. And he is not saying that Christ looked like God, but isn't really, right? All all form, no substance. He's saying the form, the morphe, what makes God, God? The, The form that is uniquely and exclusively the form of God, that is the form that belongs to Christ Jesus. Everything that God is, Christ is. All that can be said, we can put it this way, all that could be said of the divine nature can be said of Christ. As it can be said of the Father and the Spirit. There is nothing in the being, the nature of God, that is not in Christ. Now if you care about this, here's how theologians put it. You can, you can write this down and you might have to look up some words. But it, the, the, the statement is that the whole undivided essence subsists in the Son. The whole undivided divine essence subsists in the Son. So the being of Christ. He is God, one with the Father and Spirit in substance. Then secondly, notice, notice what we're told about the person of Christ. See, Paul identifies Christ as being in the form of God, but then Paul distinguishes Christ from another within the Godhead. You catch that? A, a literal translation of verse 6 reads, Though he was in form God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Can you see what is implicit? Can you see what is embedded within that language? The one who is in the form of God, singular, does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In being, Christ is God, but at the same time he can be distinguished so that there is another within the Godhead with whom he does not count equality a thing to be grasped. Paul here, I think, is referring to God the Father. You see, the scriptures, the scriptures teach us, don't they, that, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet these three are, are not three gods, but one and the same God. Remember how our shorter catechism so helpfully puts it. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, Equal in power and glory. It's the same in substance, in being, in essence, in morphe, in form. The form of God is single and indivisible. But this one undivided divine being subsists in three divine persons. Okay, so God isn't isn't divided into thirds, you know, with a piece of deity belonging to the Father and another piece of deity belonging to the Son and still yet another belonging to the Spirit. The Father is inexhaustibly God. And the same can be said of the Son and the Spirit. The Son is inexhaustibly God. The Spirit is inexhaustibly God. And and, and all that God is, the, the Father is. But the same can be said of the Son and the Spirit. And yet at the same time, try to wrap your mind around this, you can't. The Father is not the Son, nor the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, or the Son. See, these three are one in substance, identical in being, and in form, the language of Paul. 
The Godhead is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet you see in the mystery of the blessed Trinity, this one divine being eternally exists in three co-equal, co-eternal, distinct persons. So God isn't sometimes Father, and then sometimes Son, and then sometimes the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit is distinctly God, simultaneously and eternally. You see, this is how we can make sense of what Paul is actually teaching here in Philippians 2.6. This is how God, how the Son can be God and at the same time be equal to God. Because within the unity of the Godhead, there is a plurality of persons. Or as the Apostle John puts it in, in different language. Uh, in the opening verses of his gospel, this is how the word can be with God and be God at the same time. Okay, now, before our heads just go, um, let's just stop there and, and ask the question, why does this matter? Why does this matter? You know, why did, why did theologians in the early church give their lives to defend these truths? You know, as we're, as we're just kind of doggy paddling right now in uh, the, deep, the deep end, let's, let's think about why this matters for just a second. Here are two reasons. There's a lot more we could say, but here are just two reasons why this matters. First, and most basic, it matters because there is nothing more important and life-changing than knowing God. Full stop. There is nothing more important and life-changing than knowing God. We don't need to add any kind of qualification there. The knowledge of God is not a means to another end. It is an end in and of itself. Isn't it? And if we love him, we, we want to know him better. Knowing God, who he is and his triune glory, is an end in and of itself. We love him, we want to lo- know him more. So that's the most basic reason it matters. But secondly, and more related to this passage, it matters because as we are thinking about the being of Christ and the person of Christ, this is the one whose mind we are to have. That we do have in him. This is the humility that we are to emulate. Okay, so as we're reading this passage, humility to what degree? Humility to what extent? Think of it. Think about it. The Lord of glory, spotless and undefiled, equal with the Father and the Spirit, robed in, in majesty and glory. He did what in the fullness of time? He took the form of a servant. The word is slave. He took the form of a slave and was born in the likeness of men. Okay, why? Why did he do that? Why would he do that? To look to the needs of others. To bring glory to his father by counting others more significant than himself. And who are those others? Righteous, undeserving sort of folks? No. Filthy, stinking sinners like us. So you've got to dwell on this to appreciate the, the, the summons to humility here. Who is he? He is the living God 
who is the word who was in the beginning and by whom all things were made that were made. He is Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the Lord who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. He is the one who was with his people throughout their wilderness wanderings. He is the one who spoke to Job from the whirlwind. And it is this one who is revealed as Mary's boy, wrapped in swaddling cloths, nursing at her breast. Tiny, helpless, utterly dependent. It is, it is the Lord who is, how does Isaiah put it, high and lifted up, who's, the, the train of whose robe fills the, the temple. He is the one uh, that the, the, the angels, the seraphim, have to cover over their faces as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, whose glory fills the earth. This is the one who came, not in glory and splendor, but in the vulnerability of a baby nursing in his mother's arms. Behold humility, dear friends. Behold humility. And press into the mystery, the enormity of the truth of the one who, who came for the likes of us, for our salvation. He is the God-man, the second person of the blessed trinity, our maker, our preserver, and our redeemer. He is the living God in flesh. And when we come to terms with this, we've got to confess, there is no one like him. He is utterly unique. He is the Son who is equal with the Father and the Spirit, who alone took flesh and dwelled among us. And he showed a profound humility for our sake to the glory of God the Father. And so the being of Christ, he's God. And the person of Christ, he is the eternal Son of the Father. And then thirdly, let's, let's think here about the mind of Christ. Take a look again at verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Notice that language again of counting. Now, I think, I think, we are being invited to consider here the mission that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past, before the world was made. I think that's what Paul has in view here. So, he is equal to the Father and the Spirit in the bonds of the Trinity. Let's be clear about this. The Son is not God's lackey. He is not the Father's subordinate. He is one with the Father and Spirit in substance, and power, and glory, and dignity. But in order to secure our salvation in accordance with the divine plan, the Son must humble himself. He must, as Paul puts it, take the form of a servant. There's that word again. It's the same word as form of God. Now it's form of a servant. So, in other words, everything a servant is, Jesus Christ must become if we are ever going to have the hope of salvation. Jesus must humble himself in servant form to the point of death, even death on a cross. But think about this. The Lord, 
the king, the, the creator, the, the lawgiver, even before he gets to the cross, he must come and obey his own law. He must be born as a man under the law and then die under the condemnation of that same law, though he himself is personally innocent. Because it's the law that condemns us. See, the mission upon which he is sent entails that, that the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of glory, would, would walk the dirty streets of Palestine. It would demand his rejection, his, his shame, his humiliation, his suffering. He is to be mistreated, abused, maligned, brutalized, and, and beaten despised and rejected by men, and crucified and cursed upon a cross. These are all of the things that are being contemplated. And yet, you see what Paul is saying, the prospect of all of this did not cause the son to shrink back. He, he, he does not fear that by embracing the mission on which he is to be sent, that by doing so, he might somehow forfeit his deity, that his divine status might somehow slip through his hands by humbling himself in obedience, even to this point of cursed death on a cross, that somehow his equality with God would be compromised. Instead, Paul is saying, I think, in the infallible security of his equality with the Father and the Spirit, he submits himself to the plan of God. And so if we can speak this way, again, this is something that's way beyond us to fully grasp. But if we can, if we can speak of the, the single divine mind in this way, the divine mind as it, as it subsists in the Son, then this passage imagines the Son, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, weighing the cost of redemption. And all that our redemption would entail, reckoning with with all that his obedience would require of him. And he's counting it, and he's weighing it against his equality with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he knows that none of it can imperil his dignity and his equality with God. And so he came. He came born, born as one of us, born to suffer and die. And he came not counting equality with God a thing to be clutched at, as though it might be lost. See, when he is born of the virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate, he does so in complete security, cheerfully concurring with the Father and the Spirit and the singular divine will to save us. So this was, as we're reflecting upon this, this is what we need to come to terms with this morning. This was the settled, determined will of God from eternity. The coming of Jesus into the world in the fullness of time. All the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, concurring in this one great plan to redeem us by way of the cross. So this wasn't, this wasn't plan B. We need to, we need to understand that. It's not as though God created Adam and Eve and they sinned against God and fell and God said, whoa, I did not see this coming. 
I guess I'm going to have to send my son. Friends, that's not how it works. Before he formed the foundations of the earth, before he placed each star in its place, the Holy Trinity purposed our deliverance by the birth, life, death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ. That's how much God loves you. That's how much God loves you. Take that in. We need to come to terms with that, despite the fact that left to ourselves, we are all unlovely. Despite the fact that we are all covered in the filth of our own sin and failure. Indeed, wicked in the sight of God, but despite our unloveliness, he chose to love us and to love us in this way in order to make us lovely in his sight. And that takes us to an, another mystery, right? When you, when you think about this, I think you're compelled to ask the question, why? Why? Why would he love us when our sin is such a stench in his nostrils? Why would he love us so much as to give, as we sung earlier, his greatest treasure, the apple of his eye? His own beloved son. Why would he give him up for us all? And what should we do with that? How how should we respond to that? Well, let me just say two things here. First of all, here's what we need to do with this truth. We, We need to, by the grace of God, embrace it in humble faith. We need to embrace it in humble faith. Here's what this is telling us, dear friends. That you don't need to work for acceptance with God. Don't do it. Because you can't. It's mission failure every time. But here's the good news. You don't have to. You don't have to because the Lord Jesus Christ, he alone is good enough. And and you don't have to work for acceptance with God. What you need to do is trust in Jesus. And you will know and experience the acceptance of the Father. And the joy of fellowship In Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. And the second thing we need to do in the light of the humility of Jesus Christ revealed in the incarnation is we need to bow down and worship. Bow down and worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the light of this redemptive plan accomplished in time for our everlasting salvation. Dear friends, may the Lord get a hold of our hearts. And you know, we're living in a time where I've said said to some of you this morning already, it's it's very easy to be distracted and dwelling on other things. May the Lord get a hold of our hearts and captivate our minds this Christmas season with the vast enormity of the glory of the plan of the triune God who loved us And sent Jesus Christ to make us his own. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, again, we we confess our impatience with hard truths and profundity. We have been trained by our culture to think superficially. And in the light of the incarnation right now, we repent of that. And we pray that you would give us uh, minds to take this in, hearts to receive this wonderful truth. We confess this morning that 
The God that we need is not a bigger version of ourselves, but just a little bit better. The God that we so desperately need is the triune God revealed in Scripture. So Lord, would you please give yourself to us, come to us in the person of the Son, and uh, get a hold of us in your grace. Work in our hearts humble faith to believe this wonderful mystery, that he who is in the very form of God in the fullness of time took on the form of a servant to suffer and die and rise again for our redemption to the glory of the Father. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.